This is Dr. Kate Eckert with the Form, Function, and Flow Lab podcast. I'm a chiropractor, yoga instructor, anatomy junkie, and movement educator. And I am looking forward to exposing you to all sorts of ways that you can prehab your body to avoid injury and maintain those hobbies, activities, sports that you love to do. And we'll also be focusing a lot on the pregnant and postpartum journey and making sure that you can return to those activities that you love or even keep doing them while you're pregnant. All right, we are here today with Dr. Anna Folkmer, and I discovered her uh, coursework with her partners probably a few years ago, and it kind of brought a lot of different things I dabbled in, NKT and DNS full circle, which is some um, are different continuing ed uh, courses that I took through my chiropractic work. And I just love the integration of all those different concepts in more of a usable way for the office. So I'm going to hand things over to her so she can introduce herself and give us a little background. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today. Um, hi, I'm Dr. Anna Folkmer. I am a licensed acupuncturist and a board certified herbalist and a clinical anatomist. So um, prior to that, I had a background as a professional dancer, which is actually what brought me up to New York, which is I'm based in the New York City area, um, and sort of sent me on this wild journey <laughs> of understanding what this human tool is. So um, yeah, um, I have a, a clinical doctorate uh, and a master's degree in uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Um, so that is, yeah, all, all been part of the interesting journey. I wouldn't, if I could go back and redo it all over again, there isn't a single thing that I would do differently. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So when you, you started your company or the program and the coursework, how many years ago was that? Um, well, we, um, let's see, I think it was. 2013, I believe we were up in Orangeburg. Um, Dr. Dooley was teaching at Dominican College for their DPT program. Mm -hmm. And Danny <clears throat> had just finished doing some illustrations for Dr. Um, Frankie Scali on the myodural bridges and the suboccipital triangle. Mm -hmm. And Frankie, I believe, was a friend of Kathy's. And he had introduced Danny to Kathy um, because Danny was trying to go into this like world of medical illustration. But unfortunately, in order to be, there's very few medical illustrators. I, I feel bad telling his story. He's not here. <laughs> um, but um, in, in the world of medical illustration, they basically need you to be pre-med or, you know, like some sort of clinical equivalent. Um, it's not something typically designed for, for artists, like with the creative track only. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, he had figure drawing and things like that, but he didn't really have the, the hard biosciences that they typically need in most um, medical illustration programs. So Frankie had connected Danny with Kathy. Kathy was enrolled with me at Pacific college for a little while and then um, she just, you know, she opened up the lab for some assistantship. So I went up there to help her. And then Danny was there to kind of audit her class. 
and Danny and I met through Kathy. Um, and uh, it was the greatest day <laughs> really of my life because we were, they were dissecting the forearm. And what gets a little bit tricky about this is when you have a prone cadaver and they're in prone forearm position as well. And you're trying to kind of start out which, which is the flexor compartment, which is the uh, extensor compartment. And then you get that like weird little twist of the radial head that just sort of takes all the anatomy and it goes like this. And then the person's also facing down and everybody, you know, at some point there's no skin anymore. You can't, you kind of forget which way's up, which way's down. And so the students were just sort of like, ah, (laughs) it it is a really tricky thing to dissect. I'm sure you've probably done it as well. And, um, and Danny painted it on my arm. He was like, Hey, maybe we can clear this up. So he painted it on my arm in the lab and all the students left their bodies to come watch me kind of just do this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we were like, Oh my God, this is, this is crazy. And Mm -hmm. Kathy's like the most enthusiastic person in the world. So she was like, we can go around the world doing this. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess I should have pointed out the, the difference between the courses I had done before. And what I feel like what the clinically, what makes to me, what makes your stuff so unique is that you bring it full circle and give like those clinical pearls and stuff that you're going to see in your office and, and that kind of connection. But to the to other people I should have mentioned that you you do have this elaborate way of presenting it with the with the with the painting and stuff like that yeah you know it's i mean clinical relevance is not a new thing in medical education it's a tricky thing in medical education there's actually um i was reading a medscape editorial about it um, a couple of weeks ago that I just I resonated and it like made my heart so happy, but also so sad at the same time where there was a nephrologist who was like, I want to go back and reteach and restructure how, you know, nephrology is taught in medical school because you learn it from this very basic AMP and then pathophys way. Mm-hmm. And then when you get in front of a patient, it kind of all flies off the window and there's a clinical application that it, there's a, it, it creates a very big gap. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he was writing about how he sort of like wanted to face this head on and, and change the way that it was taught through clinical pearls and then sort of working backwards. And ultimately what happens is it doesn't prepare them for their boards because their boards are very much based on academic cliches and, you know, you must know this, you must have these word associations and stuff. Yeah. Um and so, you know, it sort of came full circle in, in the sense of like, well, the reason why clinical applicability isn't always taught in medical education is because it, it's not the most accurate board prep. Um, and I mean, we all, you know, Kathy and I both teach in, in institutions. We run into that problem all the time. There's like the things you need to know for a test, but mm-hmm. it kind of sets your soul out a little bit to have to teach for a test. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, and then to you know, feel like you leave a program that you've paid really good money for and have gotten a great education from, mm-hmm. but don't know how to translate that to a body. And so I think that we had all experienced that as teachers and students enough to, you know, know that there's a problem there and, and know that like, okay, you need, it has to be this really delicate balance of clinical pearls, but then also like foundational kind of 
these are some these are some sort of laws of this subject matter that you have to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it, it, it's a thing that we, I mean, we're constantly evolving. So we've been around for, this is our seventh, eighth year. Um, and we're still trying to find what that delicate balance is because I think that it's, I think it can be really tricky. It's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And that's funny that you say that in the, like, the graduate school level, because I literally just had a patient this morning that's a second grade teacher and she had just moved from fourth grade to second because they start testing, I think at third grade. And she, she was just burnt out after 20 years of teaching to a test that she wanted to get in a grade that was before you have to worry about teaching to a test. So it, it goes from grade school all the way up. It totally does. I mean, it's a, it's a frustrating thing. And so we're not really confined to assessments like that. Um, but I, I mean, you know, we understand that it's, I don't want to call it a deficit, but we understand that what people are typically coming to us equipped with is that background. Everybody who's been through formal training, everybody who has a professional license at some point was taught subject matter with an intention of being able to also pass a test. And so that does sort of in the real world leave some holes. And and we've taught this material on four continents now, and it's consistent everywhere. This is not a United States problem. This is not a Canadian problem, North American, European, whatever. It's we see the same things in Asia and Australia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's fun to be able to go, okay, Hey, listen, the point of school is to get you your license. And then what you do with your license is really sort of up to you. And so it becomes this really beautiful blend of art and science where you can, you know, take a, a creative spin while you're tackling that clinical applicability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what we're, we're currently committed to and, um, having a lot of fun with for sure. Yeah, definitely. I get a lot of patients that'll say, no, um, I've been to other chiropractors. This isn't at all the same experience. And I'm sure you get that as an acupuncturist as well. Um, and I think what you're saying is you, when you graduate school, you have these very basic, tools and it doesn't always translate really well with with it when you have an actual patient in front of you um so definitely but with the um with your you being an acupuncturist i i feel like it's probably even a little more different for people how do you integrate the two practices mm-hmm it's been a really, that's been a fun thing to kind of figure out that did not happen overnight. That's something that I, you know, constantly tweak all the time. But what I found, there's research articles actually that suggest, there's an anatomical research articles that suggests that early acupuncturists um, or early anatomists were the ones that set out the body maps and the, the meridians and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, thousands and thousands of years ago. And I, I find that to be really interesting and validating because when I, I I've got to go into the lab and just a little bit and, and start dissecting um, for an upcoming cohort. And it never fails to impress me when I, 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 I still locate all my points on, on cadavers because I still want to just 
you want to just make sure, you know, you, you, you do your points, you, you locate them and then you're like, What's there? Um, why does this thing do what it, I know that it does. I'm not, I don't need convincing that my medicine works, but what I want to know is how many ways I can explain it. And, you know, I think that a lot of times <clears throat> acupuncture theory falls a little bit victim of, of translation error. You know, it's, it is primarily, it's very poetic medicine. It's rooted in Eastern philosophy, which we don't have a, an understanding of in Western hemisphere. Typically, um, it is an agricultural society or was at the time of writing. And so a lot of things um, are written kind of like how you would read an almanac almost. Mm-hmm. It's very much about kind of forces of nature and things like that. And so it just has this really lovely, beautiful, poetic spin on it. But then when you really sit down and read it, you go, oh, they're just talking about this. And I often tell people, you know, well, if you speak two different languages, you know that when you translate one of those languages into another, like literally translate it into another language, it won't make sense. But you don't invalidate an entire language just because it didn't make sense in the way that you translated it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a problem that Chinese medicine can typically have in the United States and or in the Western world. Um, and so for me, it was kind of more about like understanding something in that language and then looking to it in the language that people will understand that I can communicate better with other physicians and my patients because, you know, it, it, this isn't 2000 years ago in China, it's Midtown Manhattan. And so I have to, you know, be able to speak to doctors at Mount Sinai and NYU and HSS and my patients, um, many of whom are also doctors. So um, I I think that for me, when I I dissect, I'm constantly thinking about the Chinese medicine of it. And I Hmm. look at why these points do what they say that they do. And it it always pans out, you know, it's really fascinating. You have to really look and I feel like it, it became the work that I started to devote my life to and never imagined that was going to happen in a million years. But, um, but you do start to see, Oh, wow. That's how, that's how they knew. Oh, that's how that, okay. That makes sense. And, mm-hmm. and it, it reinvents this material that I'm already in love with in a way that is just fascinating. And so I, it's, it's something I teach for the acupuncture school. Now it's one of the places that I work in. Um, and so I try to bring that spin on it as well, but essentially I will use an overlap of doing a good quality movement assessment and picking out points that I feel are appropriate for a patient based on my assessment and then kind of overlapping that to their Chinese medicine patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just finding where the, you know, kind of creating a Venn diagram in my head and finding where the overlap is. And that's their point prescription. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of MDs who are also acupuncturists tend to integrate their work as well. Oh, okay. And do you have a pretty um, good relationship with the medical community there and everything? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I am... I will have definitely gone to surgical consultations at HSS and uh, sat in the, you know, sat at that conference table and argued with a couple of surgeons and GPs as to why, you know, I think this procedure is going to be appropriate or inappropriate. And they're like, why is that little lady in here? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just listen. <laughs> 
I do tend to weasel my way into things. Well, that's good. I mean, I like that collaboration aspect of, of things for sure. And with your, with your immaculate dissection courses, who are the people that usually come to see obviously acupuncturists and chiropractors, but in terms of who takes the coursework, Mm -hmm. well, that's a really cool thing about it. We've had the widest range of people that have come. We get a lot of, um, of course we, we do get acupuncturists and chiropractors. We get massage therapists. Pilates instructors, yoga instructors, fitness trainers, physical therapists. We have gotten MDs. We've gotten osteopaths. We've gotten, um, we, we had a, we had a dentist. We had an equine, we have an equine therapist in England who's taken all six of our levels. Hmm. Um, and then we get people, it was so great. Like a couple of, I guess it was probably last January we were in class and um, I was talking to this woman who was taking the class and she had really great questions. And I, I said, what kind of therapist are you? And she said, oh, I'm not a therapist. I work for Amex. And I was like, whoa, really? That's so cool. She was like, yeah, I've just had this knee problem that nobody can figure out. And I start to just do research on my own and I happened to find you guys. And so I figured I'd come to a class and see if I could learn more about myself. So we have patients that take immaculate dissection because, you know, since Kathy and I are both clinical, like clinicians, but also teachers, we teach our patients just like we would teach our students. And I think, I think some people get the itch for it, you know, and then they're like, well, I have to take this coursework now because this, I see that this stuff works for me. And I want to know a little bit more about why we can only talk about so much in a Mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. So the way you, do you want to talk about how you split your courses, the different, um, six levels? Yeah. So we have, um, we have six different courses. They're not really in chronological order. The the only reason why they're labeled one through six is because that's the order that we made them in over about five years, but we have, um, a, a core concepts class. We have a lower extremity class. Upper, upper extremity. And um, we have a head, neck, jaw, intrinsic hand, um, which also includes hyoid. Uh, we have a peripheral nerve entrapment, which is really interesting. We're teaching that one this weekend. And then we have a movement subsystems course, um, which is based off of leaning subsystems work. We didn't obviously make up the subsystems, but we don't feel like people have paid homage to it. <laughs> And, um, and, and in terms of clinical applicability, you know, he's a phenomenal researcher, but we wanted more people to know about it and get their hands on it. So that's level six. Um, and then we have during the pandemic, we started a collaborative program, which, um, I, I really liked it was, it's something that meets roughly once a week. Um, for one hour only, because I feel like, you know, when I started to notice that there were people who were coming in, who were like, well, I'm, I'm coming in because I want to know more about diastasis recti. So I'm going to take core concepts or mm-hmm. I'm going to lower extremity because I want to figure out my knee. So when I realized that we were getting this, this group of people who were very much just on their own journeys and not healthcare practitioners, mm-hmm sort of thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we could just 
talk about topics, you know, because the questions start to deviate every single class. It, it, it really like whoever's taking your class, if it's a bunch of trainers, if it's a bunch of chiropractors, mm-hmm. if it's a bunch of Pilates instructors, you're never going to, even if it's the same level, it's never going to be the same class because of the questions that people are asking. And I mean, we have 15 hours of that, but you know, I feel like it was hilarious. You know, we go to LA and all of a sudden we're talking about breast implants. <laughs> no offense, LA. Um, but <laughs> you know, it was like every question was about boobs. <laughs> like these are great. I mean, they're great questions, you know, that's got, there is surgical implications that we should discuss and mm-hmm. there is force transfer into the shoulder that we should discuss here. Mm-hmm. But we, we found that we were getting so many great questions that we didn't necessarily have the space to answer. So mm-hmm. we thought, wouldn't it be great? And wouldn't it potentially bring in new people, especially now that everybody's at home more, mm-hmm. um, we could just pick one of those things and talk about them for one hour a week. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been very successful. I think it's been a lot of fun. It's definitely kept us on our toes because we prepare <laughs> on a research for it. Yeah. Um, just so that we can, you know, thoroughly discuss the subject matter. And they've been about everything, you know, migraines, menopause, uh, stretching, blue light therapy, psychedelics, you know, kettlebell swings. This week's is on ulnar nerve entrapments. I mean, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. I, I did the year collaborative that first year and I agree. It was truly impressive the amount of information per week the preparation the the notes with it and all of that and I actually thought to myself this would be good for those patients who really want to know the why behind what's going on some patients don't care and they're like just fix it (laughs) but then you get the um the patients that want to know, and, you know, you can just surf through the list and pick out the ones that are applicable to you or interest you. And, you know, you've got, you had such a wide, vast variety and like the diastasis one that is pretty applicable to all the people that I deal with. And, but the core, your core course, I've done your core course in your lower extremity, and I just started the upper extremity. Um, but man, I feel like the core one can be used on so many people. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not, we, we, we don't require people to start with core, mm-hmm. um, but we find that people who don't start with core uh, get very, very happy when they finally take core because they're like, oh, okay, this is where it all sort of starts, uh, starts and ends really. So, um, you know, I, I think that that was the first one that we made. And um, mm-hmm. that is the one that we definitely have the most, the most experience with, but it is the one that, you know, I mean, even when you, when you start talking about something like, uh, like an orthopedic or like a regional exam, right, you never can even really talk about that region unless you've cleared the axial skeletal system, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, we find that it's a treatment limitation. Some of that is, is bureaucratic. Some of that is laid out by insurance companies that say, you know, mm-hmm. if you have an elbow problem, you really need to just be treating the elbow. Yeah. Like, well, what if it's an elbow symptom for, uh, for a neck problem or shoulder problem? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so we've tried to create coursework that um, can help people have sort of an assessment protocol. One thing that none of us like are treatment protocols. Mm -hmm. We love assessment protocols. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think that, you know, we, because we get a lot of people in our offices, I'm I'm an acupuncturist for God's sakes. I'm not the first person somebody's going to see for a problem. I'm like the 10th person. (laughs) So, you know, by the time somebody comes into my office, they have failed treatment protocol. And I see why it wasn't a thorough enough assessment. So um, the, the, you know, I, I don't think that there are unfixable people out there. I think there are people who just haven't been treated holistically enough and, um, and individualized enough. And so mm-hmm. we thought we just laid the foundations of what sort of should be happening and then teach people how to assess that. Then it's something you can integrate into your care, even if you are confined to treating that elbow because your clinic said you got to treat that elbow. Like, okay, we're going to take that elbow. We're going to do some breathing drills with it to make that per- to make that stick. So, yeah. 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 If I would recommend your courses to anyone that's interested in the body essentially, or any practitioner that is like a movement practitioner or within that realm, whether it be Cause you don't even like, I'm very tactile in my profession and I am able to touch people, but I know there are some professions out there that take your courses that aren't allowed mm-hmm. to touch people, but you can walk them through some things and help them do the stuff on their own kind of a thing, which is nice because, you know, when you, when I first came out of school, I did a lot of active release technique and, I think I would have to retire after not very long if, cause you know, you're just throwing anything against the wall to see what sticks and you end up treating a lot of stuff without pinpointing what is actually working and you can burn yourself out physically, I think. And this is, this is much more efficient of finding the source of what the problem is. Well, and it's nerve wracking too. I mean, you know, as I, I, I find that some acupuncture, it, the thing that makes me bananas about it, that like is the whole reason why I have gone back to that school to teach is because, you know, in acupuncture, we're supposed to be the pattern people. We're, we can tell you 35 reasons why you have a headache or diarrhea at any given moment, but then you get a knee or shoulder pain. That's like, here's a six point prescription for that. And you're like, what happened? P- pattern people, <laughs> you know, like you were, where's my 35 patterns for why my knee might hurt. Mm-hmm. And it just, it felt like it fell short a little bit. And then, so, you know, at the very least people come into your office as an acupuncture because as an acupuncturist, because your, their back hurts or neck hurts, you know, mm-hmm. they know acupuncture as pain management. And I feel like as a community, we drop the ball on pain management and we start to treat patients like dartboards and have a problem with that because I think that that's not the way that we're taught to think. And I think it's not the way that we are, you know, I, I don't think it's the way that material is laid out classically. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it was kind of like, well, there's a pattern here too to discover. And so 
let's find that pattern and treat it. I don't feel comfortable doing things to my patients that I can't offer an explanation as to why it is or isn't working. It doesn't, I, you know, I can't manage patient expected outcomes like that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just put in a bunch of needles and kind of cross my fingers and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. No, because I feel like when you get into that mindset, your patient like gets better sometimes and then gets worse sometimes. And then you are, you know, you're holding your breath when they come back to be like, how would you feel after the last treatment? And, you know, it really could go the any, any way. And I just, I don't like, that's not comfortable. I would rather have something that I can be confident with and really understand and say, oh, okay, here's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And here are the things that we can do about it. And it just makes it a little bit more digestible for not only the patient, but for the practitioner as well. Mm -hmm. And then it, it has utterly taken guessing out of my work. I, I never have days like that where it could go either way, but it's just not something I have to worry about because it's very assessment driven. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I think that even if you're not a tactile practitioner, at least you have an understanding as to why something is the way that it is. And you can inform and educate your client mm -hmm. to help themselves. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now with chiropractic, there are, you know, every chiropractor you go to is going to be different because there are so many different techniques and, you know, just like with immaculate dissection or DNS or NKT, you've got like lots of different disciplines practicing it but with and with chiropractic you could have someone doing activator or cbp or gonstead all different types or is that the same way for acupuncture there's all different okay yeah for sure i mean I, and and i think that regardless of the type of acupuncture you're practicing we have five element practices. We have people who practice a little bit more traditionally. There's Korean acupuncture, there's Japanese acupuncture. There's, you know, it's kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, but at, but what is still present in all of that is getting to the root of the problem. And there is this deep commitment to understanding a person's constitution and understanding the root cause and not just treating the branches. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that that's what makes Chinese or, you know, traditional medicine very successful. Um, however, you know, it, it still can attract people in. And I think there's this need in our society to quick fix symptoms. And so I think that that is part of the reasons why people have sort of deviated a little bit from a pain management perspective of just like, ah, uh, well, let me just downregulate nociception in this area and needle it. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, but that just forfeits all of your pattern rules, regardless of what, you know, school of thought you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, real quick, I just wanted to get your um, take of how you would, since I work with lots of pre and postpartum patients, how you um, manage them in your practice and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, it really depends on, you know, where they are in their journey. I do work with a lot of fertility patients. Um, I've been present at many home births and, you know, we definitely pick the pieces right back up with postpartum in that whole fourth trimester. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so, you know, I make sure that anatomically they're set up for success. There is a fair amount of gut pressure management that has to occur, whether you're trying to conceive, trying to prepare for labor and delivery, or trying to, you know, make sure that your body can find its equilibrium and its sort of stability points after your body's been flooded with relaxant and your ligaments are still mm-hmm. in that sort of postpartum phase. So, I mean, even like 15, 18 months later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that for that, it really, the rules are pretty much the same. You know, we like to say in immaculate dissection that no one gets a pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, you know, I mean, labor and delivery is the strongest thing that many of us will ever do in our lives. So, um, we want to make sure that someone can minimize complications and side effects of that by teaching them how to manage gut pressure, because, you know, your, your center of mass changes when you're pregnant, like your body isn't your body anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and not for a while. So, and, and it kind of feels like that too, I think for people who are going through, fertility treatments where, you know, they're, they, they just really feel like their body's being manipulated in these ways for, you know, for a particular purpose. Um, so, you know, just managing the way that we move things throughout our body, you can call it chi if you want, you can call it intra-abdominal pressure and force transfer. I think there's a million ways to describe it. Um, but you know, it's a, it is a, period where there's so much that changes. And if you don't have a basic understanding of what needs to happen, it's very difficult to keep up with those changes as they're happening. Mm -hmm. That's what we, what I like to, you know, that's, that's my baseline approach. Mm -hmm. Especially with that shift from, you know, you gradually get bigger as you're, you know, about to give birth, but then you give birth and it's like this negative space that is all of a sudden there. Yeah. But, and I have never heard about the gut pressure with fertility. So that's interesting. I think it's really interesting for the male partner, if there is a male partner, Mm -hmm. um, because so often I have seen women go through five and six rounds of IVF and no one ever asked what the morphology, motility, and fragmentation of the, uh, in the count of the sperm was. And that's a gut pressure issue often, you know? And so if you can't get gut pressure down into the pelvic cavity, you you can't stabilize the pelvic cavity, you know, you, you've got it moving around in ways where you, you are at operating at a deficit for being able to get blood flow down there. If you can't get accurate blood flow and adequate blood flow down there, your chances of implantation are way off. You know, your chances of being able to regulate the the sperm temperature, which then has an effect on count and morphology and motility and just general health, you know, that's going to be something that comes really from the abdominal wall. And so if you can't manage that, then again, your chances of conception are going to be much lower. Um, Not to oversimplify all cases, because I know fertility is a very difficult thing to practice. those are my most difficult patients for sure. But when you're throwing all you've got at a problem, like why not look at this? You know, it's only going to help. And even, you know, once you do get pregnant, you have to have that gut pressure management to prevent 
tearing and diastasis and just general pain management when you go through the entire pregnancy and labor and delivery. So it's just a conversation that I think can start very early on. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. natal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is a really awesome look into how acupuncture can be for all different types of problems, but then also how you include the movement aspects into it. And again, for anyone listening, their courses are amazing and really bring things full circle for any movement professional or patient or person that wants to learn more about how you move and that kind of thing. So thank you so much. I know you're so busy as you teach in both the academic setting and continuing ed and have a practice. I don't know how you fit it all in, (laughs) but thank you so much for, um, for doing this interview. And I'd like to, I'll put all your, um, your contact, not contact info, but your website and everything in the comment section. So thank you so much. All right. Well, have a great day. Yeah, you too. It's really been wonderful speaking with you. So thank you so much. Be well. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. I look forward to working with you guys. And if you have any topics that you'd like discussed, make sure to comment below and let me know. So I'd be happy to share all the knowledge that I have on those issues.